Good evening. Uh, tonight's New Testament scripture reading is uh, John's chapter 17, 1 through 26, and it's on page 4 of your program. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, as Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, joy, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, we come before and under this mighty word, this um, word that penetrates deep into the soul, and that is our longing that you might, risen and living Lord, come to us with your living word and make us alive, and we'll thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. Final words that are spoken, whether they be from a grandparent to a child, a teacher to a student, a coach to their players, final words get remembered. And how much more so final prayers? Because oftentimes those prayers are large prayers. They express big desires for someone of very important things. And in the final week of Jesus' life, which John refers to as the hour to come, the hour before he is, or the hour which will include his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, Jesus prays for his disciples, his followers. It's often called the high priestly prayer. But in it, we hear not only the longings of God for them, but the longings of God for us. I wonder if you've ever wondered how God would pray for you. Well, this will give you some insight how he would pray for you. And I want to highlight three things about this prayer. One, he prays that God's faithfulness might be our confidence. Second of all, that God's oneness might be our experience. And thirdly, that God's desires might be our destiny. So those are the three things that we'll look at. First of all, Let's begin how Jesus prays that God's faithfulness might be our confidence. In particular, how his faithfulness would be that confidence. Now, as Jesus is praying, he spends a lot of time reporting to the Father of what he's done. Almost like a chief of staff might report to an official above them. He's informing God of his faithful, completed work. He mentions that he has protected and guarded those 
that have, uh, of his followers. He has taught them. He has made God's name known to them. And that means God's character and everything about God. He has kept them in that knowledge. There's several things he says and he reports. And maybe all of it could be summarized in verse 4 when he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, why does he spend time informing God of that? Is it God doesn't know? Of course not. He prays and informs God, not for the benefit of God, but for the benefit of his disciples, that they might know his faithfulness, that they might know the work that he has accomplished on their behalf. Imagine that an elderly parent knows they're coming to the end of their life, and so they ask their adult son or daughter to accompany them to the bank. And when they go to the bank, they meet with the banker, and they begin to verify their assets, how much money they have, the fact that the mortgage note has been all paid up, maybe some of the investments. And when they're doing that, they're certainly not doing it for the benefit of the banker. He already knows. And they're not doing it for their own benefit. They know they're doing it for the sake of their son or daughter, so they might know. As Jesus prays these things within the hearing of his disciples, he wants them to know that the ultimate source of their confidence is his faithfulness, what he has done. As they live life, as they serve him, as they face all sorts of challenging, as they face all sorts of suffering, he wants them to know that. And you see, you could see what a difference that would make would make a difference in how you face your future fears. You know, sometimes when um, we're hiring people, we might apply one of the principles that says the best predictor for future performance is past performance, right? What someone did in their last job is the best indicator of how they're performing this one. The same holds true for, true for God. It's his past faithfulness that then builds us up for his future faithfulness. This is why people like Moses and David in the Psalms spend so much time recounting and rehearsing the faithfulness of God because it builds our confidence. That's why it's so important that you and I start our little scrapbook of God's faithfulness to us. All the ways that he's showing up, the little ways and the big ways, because it'll give us confidence for the future. It also would affect the way that we would receive God's word. When someone is trustworthy and faithful, when we deem them to be trustworthy or faithful, we are more open to them bringing a challenging word, maybe even a hard word into our lives. And the same holds true with God. The more we understand that God's word has been faithful in our lives, the more we're going to be open to hearing those hard parts of the Bible that maybe we struggle with, that maybe on the, the front end we don't agree with. We're able to say, I'm struggling with this, God, but I trust you. And I know your word is proven true. It even affects the approach to our own faithfulness. For instance, the level of our faithfulness. Have you ever over-prepared for something? Over-prepared maybe for an exam or a presentation? And because you do, you get so sort of in your head and thinking about the information that you can't really be free to recount it? Or maybe have you over-prepared for a conversation? And so you presume what the person's going to say, you go into it, you're not really listening when you go into it. 
Or maybe you've overprepared for a recipe. You've overstirred. I was reading something about muffins. And it said, you know, those little bubbles in the muffin batter, is, it's actually CO2, and if you stir too much, it pops and they won't rise. You probably didn't expect that you would get that from me today. <laughs> Another example. What I'm saying is, whether they be big or small, the reason we do all that stuff is because we don't believe God will show up, and He will be faithful. So it affects our own approach, the focus of our faithfulness. Sometimes we can be so focused upon a boss we're trying to please, a parent we're trying to please, maybe even a spouse we're trying to please, that our faithfulness can become too much of an obsession before them. One of the words that's sometimes used for this is we will overfunction in relationships. We'll try to solve things that aren't ours to solve. We'll try to heal things that we're not able to heal. Again, because we're not believing God would come in and be faithful. Or maybe our motive. It might be that we work really, really hard at our job, but it's because we want to make money because deep, deep down we're afraid that we'll be vulnerable in different areas of our lives. Now, notice in this prayer, Jesus doesn't say a word about his disciples' faithfulness. As he prays on their behalf, he doesn't go, Oh, God, you know these are really good guys. I mean, they, you know, I know they mess up, but they've done good work and they're good guys. Would you please bless them on that fact? In fact, within a week, most of them will scatter, one of them will deny, and one will outright betray. He doesn't say anything about their faithfulness. And it really gets to the heart of why Jesus highlights his faithfulness. That you and I, in the deepest part of our being, can have faithfulness between the God before whom we will stand and stand now. That we would know deep in our heart, as John says, if anyone sins, he stands before God, he has an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or we would know what the Apostle Paul says, that we, through Jesus Christ, we come before God's presence with boldness and access with confidence. And it, it means that you and I don't have to exaggerate our faithfulness to be before God, nor do we have to despair. We can celebrate when we read, God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Easter is a time for us to zoom in on the work of Jesus Christ, his faithful suffering, the, faithful, the way he suffered quietly, his heroic love, the way he endured until the end. And the reason we zoom in on that stuff isn't so that we might feel badly. So, that, you know, the response of Easter would be, sorry, I'm such a louse that you had to die for me, God. Or, you know, I'm going to try to be better like you because you really endured to the end. That's not the point. The reason why we zoom in is God wants us to know that our salvation has been accomplished. That God is thoroughly satisfied with the faithfulness of his son. He is overjoyed with the faithfulness of his son. And so all those that attach themselves to him can have that same experience. And you know, if you can stand before the most righteous being in the universe, you will be able to stand before anyone and anything. Whether it's a tough job situation you're going into this week, whether it's a potential scary diagnosis, whether it's some sort of hard conversation you have to have with a friend, when you know you can stand before him, 
You're confident. Jesus prays that our confidence would be in his faithfulness, not our own. The second thing he prays is that God's oneness might be our experience. Now, for decades, we've had research that the way a child bonds or attaches to their parents has a lot to do with their experience as an adult, their self-esteem, their ability to move out in independence. And in the same way, we spiritually grow and mature more the more certain we are of the bond that we have with God. How sure that bond is, the oneness of God that he's established. And it's a theme that runs all through Jesus' prayer. As he's preparing to leave these disciples, he's saying, Father, all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And later he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Sometimes we will use the language where someone might say, you know, this is my biological mother or father, but this is my real mother and father. You know, because they had two different experiences. Maybe they didn't know their birth parent. Although that's a reality in our lives, you have to understand it's never a reality with God. Everybody that is born of God, everybody that's been united to God through faith in his one and only Son, is known by God, belongs to God, and is one with God. He is with them. And the fact of that oneness is supposed to influence the feelings of our oneness. I don't know how you come today. Maybe God for you is a very distant reality. Maybe you remember times where you're very close to him and you don't feel so close to him. Maybe you feel very near to God, but it's based on basically how you've been doing this week. And if you weren't doing good next week, you wouldn't feel near to him. What Jesus reminds us is the basis of our feelings needs to be the fact of the oneness. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, I did a, a wedding a couple weeks ago, and there was a couple there from our community who had been married a year earlier, and they said, it's really good for us, it was really good for us to be at this wedding because as we heard the vows, as we watched the covenant that was being made, we heard of God's faithfulness to the covenant, it encouraged us about our own marriage. You see what happened there. There was an objective reality of oneness that was set before them. And seeing that objective reality gave them experiential feelings that, hey, I can do this. God means the same thing to be for you and I, that we would see everything, all the benefits. You know, the theological category for this is union with Christ. And one theologian, a guy named John Murray, who wrote so well on it, said this, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So intimate is the union between Christ and his people that they were partakers with him in all his triumphal achievements. Easter is a season where we are celebrating the triumphal achievements of Jesus Christ. Next week on Palm Sunday, it's called his triumphal entry. How he trumps the world as he rides in so humbly. The great king comes in humbly. But his other great achievements as he stands before people that accuse him falsely and he doesn't say a word, as he bears the judgment and wrath of God for all those who would trust him, all these triumphal achievements. But here's the thing. You and I need to go beyond just sort of hearing and knowing those things. We are called to be partakers of them. We are partakers of them. Everyone that believes. 
So that means his sacrificial atonement means that he got, God has triumphed over my true guilt. He has triumphed over my shame. And there is now no condemnation for those that hold on to Christ, that believe in Christ. Through his triumphal achievement of his righteous life, I come to understand I have been brought into a total state of complete forgiveness. That you have been brought into a state of full favor. All the rights of sons and daughters that belong to God. And not only has the penalty of sin been taken away, but the power of it over me and over you. Those vices, those addictive patterns, those things that we struggle with so deeply, that we might know in another prayer that says, I pray that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? That is the kind of power that is dwelling in everyday Joes and Marys like you and me that grab hold of Jesus Christ. Have you reckoned, you know, Washington's a very powerful town. I'm asking you to consider a different power. Have you considered the power of the resurrection of the Son of God dwelling in you because of your faith in Him? Do you feel like you lack the power to be who you want to be? You probably do at times, just like me. Join yourself to Him. Remember that you have been joined to Him. And there's a few particular parts of this oneness that Jesus highlights. I want to mention two. First of all, oneness of name. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Now, name is really shorthand for the authority, the character, the status, the glory of God. And you know, names can be important, names can be significant, and a name might make all the difference. I was reading a blog this week of a veteran pollster. You know, he polls uh, basically folks that are voting on candidates. And he said, you can see a real difference between candidates that lose and candidates that win. He said, the candidates that lose many times are just content if the voters know their name and a few facts. But the ones that win are the ones that want voters to know their name, but also some of the substance of what they do and who they are. And he gave this illustration of this documentary, Mitt, which I haven't seen, on Mitt Romney. And he said they pulled people coming out, and what they heard over and over was, you know, I didn't really know that about him. Maybe if I did, I would have thought about voting for him. It's not enough for you and I to just know the name of Jesus Christ. It's not enough for you and I just to simply identify with the name of Jesus Christ. We have to live out of the authority and the status of the name. That's what we have to press into, to know the royal name, that you have been stamped with the name of the high king of heaven and earth, as we did baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that name placed upon the family name. Now, whether you have a lot or a little in your family, the people that bear your name have the best shot of getting it, Right? They'll get it in the end. When you bear God's names, you become a co-inheritor with his son. 
access to his name, the oneness of his name, Jesus tells us about, but also the oneness of love, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I am so glad that Jesus prayed that in this prayer. Because it's very easy for me to believe how God the Father could love him. Because he's perfect and righteous and extraordinary. But often in my own life, and I wonder if you're the same, you know, my love, uh, my understanding of God's love for me maybe arises to a kind of like Jesus' love. But not a just as Jesus' love. But I want you to notice what he prays. He prays that they would know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So it's an even as love. It's an as much as love. It's as as long love, as high love, as deep love, as wide love. That's the kind of love that the children of God have been adopted into. And he tells us there are two effects of it. One, it's a magnetic love. He says that the world will see how God loves people that put their faith in him, and they'll go, I went in on that. I want some of that love. Give me the love. They watch that unconditional love. They watch that endless, infinite love and are attracted to him. But also, it's a wrecking ball love. Jesus prays in here, I not only pray for these disciples, but those that would believe in me. And by that he's mentioning the nations and the Gentiles that would be incorporated into the people of God. Because at that point, primarily, those followers and believers were of Israel. And as you go to the New Testament in the book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, you see that mission and project go forth. And in Ephesians 2, we're told that project means that Jesus Christ breaks down walls, hostilities between ethnicity and race, as he's forming this pan-ethnic bride, this global people, together. Because there are walls in the church, you know. One wall might say on it, why do we have to talk about race? Why is this important? I thought we were over this. That may be one wall. Another wall might be, you know, I really feel like I've been hurt when I've made an effort to reach across a line. There's all these little walls that can come up, and Jesus, with his wrecking ball love, is smashing them down so that if we are secure in him, we can take those risks to learn and love each other and listen. But lastly, he prays that God's desire might be our destiny. Now, if you love someone you have desires and longings for them. And I can't tell you how many times maybe I'll talk to someone and maybe it's a parent or maybe it's a friend and they'll say, you know, I just want this person to be happy. I just want them to be happy. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a good thing, but it really is kind of a thin longing. I mean, I mean what if they're greedy? You know, I just, I, I just want them to be happy as they're greedy. Or what if they can never commit to relationships? I just want them to be happy in the fact they can't ever commit to relationships. I mean, we understand that it's a very thin, superficial thing. You know, wouldn't we instead want to pray, I want this person to be courageous. I want this person to be self-giving. I want this person to be morally beautiful. And these are the kind of prayers that Jesus prays for us. He doesn't just pray, I want you to be happy. Actually, he does pray that in the Beatitudes, but I don't know if we like the answer. Because his definition of happiness is very different. 
He wants us to be happy, but in a different way. And so he prays, I'll say three things, there's more, but bring out three things for us. One is he prays that we might be able to endure temptation and trial. I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That means that God keeps us in the place where we are permitted to be tempted, but that we wouldn't be taken by it, just in Jesus' temptation in the desert. One of the ways that you grow morally is by being tested. God permits it so you and I might be tested and that we might trust him. But he also prays that we would be able to endure suffering. He says, they will be hated like I have been hated. They already have been hated. And so in this prayer that we would endure temptation and trial, he sets before us a positive vision of something that typically is construed as negative. And I was reminded of this week, you know, there, there is a chain of maturity you find in the New Testament. It goes like this. Endurance, suffering leads to endurance, leads to character, leads to hope. That's the chain of maturity for someone that follows God. Suffering leads to endurance, endurance leads to character, character leads to hope, hope leads to joy. And I was reminded of that this week, uh, Jackie Griffith, who's on staff with us, who happens to be here tonight with her husband, Howard. Um, and she didn't know I was going to take this quote and quote it, but it was such a great quote from an Oxford minister from the 1800s. Let me read this to you and see if you can lock into the vision he's putting before us. It is a tremendous moment when first one is called upon to join the great army of those who suffer. That vast world of love and pain opens suddenly to admit us one by one within its fortress. We are afraid to enter into the land, yet you will, I know, feel how high is the call. It is as a trumpet speaking to us that cries aloud, It's your turn, endure, play your part. As they endured before you, so now close up the ranks, be patient and strong as they were. Since Christ, this world of pain is no accident, untoward or sinister, but a lawful department of life with experiences, interests, adventures, hopes, delights, secrets of its own. These are all thrown open to us as we pass within the gates, things that we could never learn or know or see so long as we were well, doing well. God, help you to walk through this world now open to you as through a kingdom royal and wide and glorious. That is something different. That is a different prayer than, I hope you're just happy. It's a prayer that says, I hope you'll amount to who you were meant to be. I hope you will be a weighty person, glorious. That's how Jesus prays for us. Secondly, he prays that we could give ourselves to God's truth. He says, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, there are areas of crossover between God's truth and the culture in the world. Be glad for that. If all of God's truth and goodness was pulled out of the world, it would be a terrible place to live in. But because God sustains the world as he made the world, he's always getting his truth through. But fundamentally, the culture and the world are at odds with the kingdom of God and the truth of Jesus. Let me illustrate it. The world tends to tell us that we create God, that we determine who God is. 
You know, I would like God to be this, God to me is that, is the phrase we use. The Bible tells us that God is his own person and will be who he is. The world teaches us that our identity is in our work, in our achievements, our sexual expression, the things that we own. The gospel tells us that our identity is our sonship in the Son of God. The world teaches us that the way of salvation is self-salvation. You, you justify yourself by how you're doing and your relationships through your gifts. We are trying to provide righteousness to everybody else in the world. The gospel teaches we receive righteousness free from God. They're fundamentally opposed to one another. Jesus is praying that his disciples would know the difference and that they could live into the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. But he says more than that. He says, I pray that you will be sanctified. That means to be set apart. That means devoted. That means to give yourself one holy. And that means this, that God's prayer for you and I isn't that we just would acknowledge the truth, but we would adore the truth. We would not just see the veracity of truth, we would see the beauty of truth, and it would do its number on our affections. So when you are reading the Bible, your job is not to leave that passage or verse until it has touched your affections and renewed your affections in a way that will change your decisions and your desires. That's what it means to be sanctified according to the Word. As Psalm 19 would say, I find my delight in your commandments. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 119 is a love song to God's word. But to close, he then prays that we would know and have eternal life. I've given them eternal life to all, Father. And then he defines what eternal life is for us, that they would know you only, the true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John, what it means to have eternal life. And there's two things I'll say about this. One is, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about quantity, it's talking about quality. Not just talking about length, it's talking about fullness of life. So he's saying that, God, I have revealed you in such a way that every part of their lives would blossom it would be abundant and full. This is God's destiny for those that touch him. You, I said this a couple weeks ago. It's not my quote, but on the new heavens and new earth, we will blossom in places we didn't know we had buds. This is how we will grow in fruitfulness. But lastly, he prays at the heart of it that we might know God. That we would see the heart of eternal life is to know the one that has created us, sustained us, and loved us so much he tamed and took on flesh and died for us. On a human level, we get this. Maybe. You know, at the end of someone's life, maybe they go, I realize now that it's not all about work. It's not all about making my name in Washington. It took me a long time. I, I neglected relationships, but now I understand this. I understand it's about relationships. But what a sad thing to fall short and not arise higher to go. It's about you. It's about this relationship. You have made me. You have witnessed every moment of my life that even my best friends and parents haven't seen. You have felt my griefs. You have carried me and guarded me. And you have given more than anybody else will ever give to have me. 
What a tragedy it would be to get to the end of your life and not know Him. So you see what large prayers the Son of God prays for us. That His faithfulness would be our confidence, that His oneness would be our experience, that His desires would be our destiny. And the reason He prays such big prayers for us is because He has such a big heart for us. Let's pray. We do thank you for your heart, your mediation, and your prayers for all those that trust in you, O oh God. We give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.